Marking the Roll, a podcast for teachers. We're based in the Illawarra area of New South Wales in Australia, but really it's for educators everywhere. My name's Phil Dye. I'm your host. And last episode, which was episode 18, was the first in our series on trauma-informed teaching. And I interviewed Beck Thompson, the author of Chasing Normal. Uh, Beck is a teacher with a traumatic childhood. For the information about that, you're going to have to listen back to episode 18. It was a difficult listen at times. Today, I'm going to be talking to Tom Brunzel, the Director of Education from the Berry Street Education Model. Um, and just before that, I'm going to complete the interview with Beck Thompson, who doesn't talk about her uh, traumatic childhood, but talks about teaching and how to incorporate some of what she knows into teaching. First off, though, I want to thank Essie and Valma and Richard. Um, they've all purchased either memberships of Marking the Roll or they've purchased coffee cups. Yes, we now have Marking the Roll coffee cups so that you can show off your allegiance in the staff room. Um, you've just got to go to the little yellow coffee cup on the markingtheroll.com.au site and that'll take you through to where you can purchase a coffee cup. So thank you, Essie and Velma and Richard. Thank you very much. Um, now, the interview or the rest of the interview with Beck Thompson, author of Chasing Normal. As I said, this won't contain information about her childhood, but about her teaching. And I asked her first if her traumatic childhood influenced her in becoming a teacher. I didn't really know what I wanted to be because I didn't really know myself well enough to know what I could be. Um, I think when I was training to be a teacher, what always stood out for me was how are the children emotionally? Um, that was more of a factor in becoming a teacher than teaching itself, uh, if that makes sense. Yes, it was a pastoral care sense that you had over the kids, not necessarily wanting to teach them maths. Yeah, because I think I just I just related so much, especially when I was on teaching rounds and I would go in and um, I think I was more primed, I guess, for, for watching how their behaviours or seeing if they actually needed someone rather than needing help with the task. I, I think I was more attuned to that. From your experience, what telltale signs would a teacher look out for in a student who's experienced trauma? Because you weren't a naughty kid, were you, really? No, I I really I really wasn't and I think that's what makes it really really hard for teachers because I think the those sort of more overt behaviors that we see we can tend to sort of think well what's happening behind the scenes where is this behavior coming from what are they going through but it's it's not always like that like you say I I wasn't a naughty child i i was the shy child i was the anxious one i was i was the one who was scared to get it wrong uh it's it is a really challenging um 
thing to identify because it can go both ways. It, it can obviously be the ones that don't retain things or might appear needy. They always want the teacher's attention. They always, they're always wanting help or the ones that don't want to participate in um, group activities or the ones that, you know, don't have anyone to play with out in the yard or, you know, it, it's, it's just so varied. And I think it's probably just paying attention and looking for patterns and, um, I think there's there's many teachers dismissing trauma informed teaching as as they think trauma is being used as an excuse for for bad behaviour. But what we're talking about is many of the kids behave very very well, um, and and the trauma doesn't excuse the bad behaviour, does it? Well, no. I mean, it, you know, we're we're dealing with immature, underdeveloped brains, and they often don't have the capacity. I mean, who? what child's going to come out and say, well, you know, I'm seeing this at home. I'm having to deal with this at home. Um, they're, they're not. They're going to, they're mm. yeah, they're going to respond in their own, their own underdeveloped way. And it's not, it's not uniformed. It's often very chaotic. And, you know, it's funny that these children that go through, you know, abusive home lives in whatever form that abuse takes, it's still their home. And going into the unknown and speaking up about it, then what happens? You know, do they get taken out of the only safe or the only known familiar place they know? Uh, Because it was something Mm. that I, you know, you, you sort of, you're thinking about, but you're still taking them out of a familiar environment, which is terrifying. Yes. No matter how bad that love is, it's still love to them. Yeah, exactly. It's It's what they're taught love is. And taking them out of that I, I just yeah I just think it's it's a lot easier to dismiss it um, than getting to the heart of it and, and and I sometimes I don't even think you don't necessarily need to know what's going on you, the kids just need to know that someone has their back where can listeners get your book it's in hard copy and ebook isn't it yeah so my book is available on my website at beckthompson.com.au and yeah, so it's available as a as a paperback or or an ebook. Now we have two copies of Beck's book to give away, um, and all you have to do is to go to the Marking the Roll website, click on the little yellow coffee cup, make a donation. Now a donation need only be five dollars. You can make a donation. You can buy a coffee cup for $25, including delivery to you. Or you can buy a membership, and a membership starts at at $20. So uh, if you've done that, you go into a draw to uh, win one of these books. Um, And Essie and Velma and Richard are already in the draw. And by the way, there is only 15 people in the draw. Now, as Beck said, sometimes it is the very quiet students students who are after constant attention from the teacher and always asking questions of the teacher that are the ones that may be experiencing trauma but uh, there are also very obvious uh, indications of trauma i go back to my childhood which was uh, pretty traumatic Uh, my mother was uh, depressed extremely depressed she was addicted to cigarettes 60 a day she was addicted to prescription medications and gambling 
when I was in year eight, she began suffering from emphysema uh, and, of course, still would not give up cigarettes, probably increased her puffing, uh, which made matters even worse. In her depressed state, she would lock herself in the bedroom for maybe three, perhaps four or five days, uh, and my two sisters and I would not see her the whole time, um, except when she passed by the lounge room to go to the bathroom. And that was it. My two sisters married very young and got managed to get out of the house, but because I was the youngest, I was, I was stuck there. That was exacerbated by uh, my father's absence from the home for 18 hours a day because he had to work three different jobs in order to um, uh, pay for my mother's gambling addiction. Now, my trauma manifested itself in certain actions, and I pulled my hair out, strand by strand, um, and until I had a very large ball patch in the middle of my head. I was called Friar Tuck at school, um, which I didn't mind that much, but, you know, I knew that I was pulling it out. Um, and it it wasn't in the days of cutting. Now, you know, damaging the skin and cutting started to be a thing around about 1970, 1975, but it wasn't a thing before that. Although self-harm through burning with cigarettes uh, was a thing, um, self-poisoning was a thing, anorexia and um, self-starvation was a thing. It's important to know that all of these things, including my pulling the hair out, have a neuroscientific explanation. The pathway of trauma is pretty large. The, the neuron pathways, where all the neurons join together, uh, and they form this very, very dominant pathway, so dominant that it's very hard to stop thinking about it. It's there. It's embedded. So one way of diluting that pathway is to eclipse it with an even bigger one, pain. And by pulling hair out one by one, by cutting, uh, by starvation, by self-poisoning, by burning, creates an even greater pathway which momentarily relieves the other traumatic neuron pathway. And it was only through studying neuroscience in my 60s that I suddenly realised, ah, that's what I was doing and that's what many others are doing as well. And by doing that, it actually gives, a, gives some relief over that traumatic situation that they are experiencing on a daily basis. So there can be noticeable things nowadays. It's more likely to be uh, students perhaps always covering them, their arms up if they're cutting or their legs. But there are physical manifestations of trauma um, as well, which are a little bit easier, of course, to identify. Now, while my teachers knew that there was something odd, I was called down to the office one day and there was my mother sitting in the deputy principal's office with the principal as well. Here she was smoking a cigarette and high as a kite and rambling. And uh, the deputy principal looked at me and asked me, you know, what was going on? And um, I said, oh, I'm not quite sure. And she was talking about... Uh, hairdressing and it was after that very very odd meeting that the teachers I believe were told nowadays they couldn't be told because of privacy I guess but in those days yes the principal and the deputy principal would have said hey there's something very much wrong with Philip Dye's uh, family life here he's, he's, he's 
you know, he's, he's, he's losing his hair and uh, we've just witnessed what it's like there at the home. So it can be a lot more obvious than, than, than you might think at times. And here's a short message from uh, Lee Louise, our producer. In two weeks' time, Marking the Roll will have a special members and donors podcast. This means it will not be available on streaming services, but accessed through a link and code emailed to all members and donors. The topic will focus entirely on school-based behaviour systems and will feature interviews on the Michaela School System in Wembley, England. The Michaela School has teacher-driven learning and has high expectations of student behaviour. Boundaries are set and firm. It is one of the top performing schools in the UK and has a pupil happiness far exceeding other schools. We'll also be interviewing Ian Luscombe from Behaviability. Ian was interviewed in one of our most popular episodes, The Battle for Behaviour in Season 1, Episode 5. This podcast is only for donors and members, so if you'd like some alternative and successful school-based behaviour ideas, donate a few dollars or become a Marking the Roll member. Just go to markingtheroll.com.au and click on the little yellow coffee cup. So, as you just heard, it's worthwhile becoming a member. Access to special members-only podcasts. Okay, time for uh, a next guest, my interview with Tom Brunzel, the director of the Berry Street Education Model. Now, Tom is a very popular speaker. Um, I was told by many teachers, geez, you've got to get Tom on. Um, And talking to him, I realised why. He's very, very passionate about what he does. Firstly, though, I asked him why trauma-informed teaching has become such a big thing in 2022. I believe that the momentum is picking up because the science has definitely strengthened in the last decade in particular. You know, when we say words like trauma-informed practice and trauma-informed education, I see that as interdisciplinary. And as you know in your work, Phil, so much of what we're doing is hinging on our advances in neurobiology and the impact of trauma and chronic stress on the developing mind and body. Then as we also understand the evidence base of the impact of trauma-informed teaching and learning, wow, the publications and the, uh, you know, just the foundational work we do around measuring outcomes around student well-being, student mental health, student academic achievement, well, I think that it's pretty compelling now and the ways in which the field is meeting the needs of students of complex unmet needs. But of course, now our teams at Berry Street are getting many calls from schools that we would not have gotten calls from before because of the vicarious impacts, the complexity in communities as a result of the pandemic, and of course, all the other things that communities are contending with right now. A common phrase that I've heard from teachers is that um, this this trauma-informed teaching um, is just something, it's just an excuse for poor behaviour. Is that the case? Certainly from my standpoint as both a researcher and uh, working at Berry Street, I would disagree. Uh, I'd like to suggest that 
Trauma-informed practices help us understand the underlying unmet needs of why we see some of these behaviors, but then we want to move right to strategies in proactive ways, because frankly, I do care about student well-being and engagement. I do care about how we help kids meet their own met needs in the classroom, but ultimately, I want to see kids learn, and on-task learning is such an important centerpiece of what we do at Berry Street. Um, you do better when you understand how how to contribute and what we can do to support you when you're having a rough day. So, so th- if this happens at school, if the teacher can provide a safe environment, what happens when the child goes home to a very unsafe, traumatic environment? Is everything then diluted or, or is there a counteraction there? What happens with that? Well, that's a big question, Phil, and I would I would answer that by, you know, reframing for a lot of teachers out there and of course our allied education professionals also listening that what you've described in terms of the needs within the home and the needs we see in communities often of great educational inequity is those are systemic concerns. Those are concerns that are quite complicated for just a teacher to address and understand. That's why I'm so proud to work at Berry Street because we take a real care team approach. We work with family and education case managers and other mental health professionals to support family needs. However, what I want teachers to understand is we, although systemic concerns take time, those kids are still arriving at your classroom again the next day. What can we do to have predictable rhythms, self-regulation strategies? How can we build stamina for learning? Because we know so many kids are going to arrive at school after an exhausting night of drama or sleeplessness or not having nurture, uh, nurturing food in their tummies. Uh, we know that teachers still have to create the environment where students can succeed. Indeed. Uh, last week's um, a podcast, I interviewed Beck Thompson, the author of uh, Chasing Normal. And yes. she described uh, certainly one of her teachers in the book um, that really made her do her very, very best. And not be, she wanted to do her best because of the words from this teacher. And I suppose that's what you're getting at there with, yes, you can't fix things at home, but you can certainly fix things or help things in the classroom. Well, that's, uh, that's what my research is suggesting teachers own well-being can increase when they do have these effective strategies. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to share one of them because I think it does absolutely talk to what you have brought up here. Yes, indeed. Is uh, one of the things we do is have every student have something we like calling a ready-to-learn plan. And it's very simple. You know, it's it's having it's ensuring that every student has three, maybe more, strategies pre-agreed upon with the teacher that they can use to self-regulate often in the classroom or from a trusted adult in the hallway or whatever it is. Now, everything is a little more complicated than I just said, right, to actually implement. And it requires whole school systems and systems of support from administration and leadership teams. But I really want all teachers to think, I'm going to build resilience, and I'm going to define that because that's quite a buzzword, and I like the buzz. But when I say resilience, I'm talking about helping kids be flexible, accurate, and to meet their own needs in healthy ways. And when kids know, just like at the Street School, when I can enact one 
of my strategies with permission from the teacher and not in a wink to say, yep, just go to the sensory corner, just use something to keep your hand moving or get a drink of water, take a deep breath. That's when I can return to learning. And the way that we help uh, I don't want to say reinforce, I'm going to say encourage kids to use that is when we've had a rough day and and a student has perhaps made a poor choice and we know that they're making the best choices they can often with the things that are happening in their bodies, we don't want teachers to lord over the choices. We want them to say, hey, we're going to restore this with you and we want you to choose a strategy next time. What can you do when you notice yourself struggling that's, I think, one of the first steps teachers can take toward resilience. Yes, indeed, yes. And getting the student to be able to identify that and make the choice that will um, de-escalate themselves, I suppose you'd call it. Absolutely. And I think that answers the first question, or maybe the second question you brought up, which is, is trauma-informed practice saying, oh, no, this child is too dysregulated to learn, so they should probably just not learn for the day. And I know I'm being a little bit sarcastic in that in that way of framing, but you know we hear this a lot sometimes. And so what I'm saying is, no, what we want to do is create that secure base by always offering strategies and pathways forward for this student to employ. Now, I'm just going to interrupt that interview for uh, a couple of minutes just to talk about something that that Tom mentioned, and that was tools to um, de-escalate and tools for self-regulation. And I know listeners are saying, okay, what are some of these tools? What? Okay, we know that breathing can be one, meditating can be one, but in a student who's got a trauma background, it's very passive, it's not active, um, and it's difficult for them. Um, a school that is doing this really well is Campbell House School at Glenfield, um, under the guidance of Kelly McEwen, who introduced this program after I did uh, some teachers' professional development with neuroscience and neuroscience of, of learning. And um, Campbell House uses this headset on students, so when the student feels that they are escalating or their thoughts are getting out of control they can put a headset on and that headset reads the amount of electricity that their brain is generating so it knows what's low uh, which is good for learning or high which is not so good and they can actually either watch a globe to see colors changing to see where their brain electricity is going or they can look at it on a screen and actually get a, a number as to how much electricity their brain is producing. Then they learn the thoughts that will self-regulate them, that will bring their electricity down. So when they're having these um, moments, they can actually then enter that other zone of thinking, whether it might be music as well. It might not just be thoughts. It could be music. It could be counting. It could be fiddling with a bit of paper. Um, There's lots of things that, that... individuals do to bring their electricity down so that assists the students and they can see it in a very tangible and active way rather than just saying okay breathe or or read this Um, and students are really uh, responding to that so i just mentioned campbell house again doing doing really well 
You're listening to Marking the Roll, a podcast for teachers and anyone interested in education. We discuss the real issues facing educators without fear or favour. Please follow us on Facebook, subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends. For more info, go to markingtherole.com.au. And now back to our interview with Tom Brunzel from the Berry Street Education Model. I, I, I like this about the program, Tom, that it's not just talking about support. And so many of these programs just talk about support. But yours talks about learning as well. So it's support in order to learn. And I think that's really an essential essential difference. Um, Tom, I'm a big fan of the SPARK program in the USA with Dr. John Rayty, where regular exercise is introduced to oh, the learning program. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> me too. What's, what's your view of that as an aid to the trauma-informed teaching? Oh, wow. I am a big fan of Spark. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Phil. You know, what great ways of thinking are teaching us is, yes, talking is important with students of concern, but movement is how they're going to help strengthen their own body's regulatory capacities and have the capabilities to know what we can do in terms of that ready-to-learn plan. Students have to move while learning, and I get worried with all of the Zoom learning and online learning and then teachers who don't know these practices yet and that old, I'm going to lecture you or I'm going to force you into some kind of listening sitting marathon, we can see when students are moving their own bodies and they're tipping in their chairs or they're poking other kids or they're just, they can't stop moving their hands. That's a sign to us that they are crying out for that physical regulation. You know, at the Berry Street School, we know that when our kids are antsy and they can't stop moving, that's a cue that our teachers are not doing enough yet either to engage and motivate and pique their interest, but also provide those sort of dual purpose strategies that say, this is going to help you focus and this is going to help you move your body at the same time. That's why (laughs) we love brain breaks and all the Ah. rhythm and all that stuff. And You know, so many teachers are saying, wait a second, I thought brain breaks were just going to waste time in the classroom. And our research and practice says when you get kids to move, you're going to get more engagement. You'll be happy to know that we have brain breaks in this podcast. (laughs) Tom, we do. At the halfway mark, we always have a a musical brain break. People can have a dance if they want to. But, um, yeah, it's essential, I think, not just for students and kids, but for adults as well. And it's probably time for us to have a brain break. Uh, Just for those teachers, um, exercise, if it's repetitive, like walking on a treadmill, cycling, that is the best sort of exercise to bring a student down into a learning zone. Uh, And then you can teach them after they've had 10 or 15 minutes of that. Now, all of our brain breaks are from musicians or bands from the Illawarra. And here's a uh, Wollongong-based singer-songwriter, Jimmy Turak. Uh, It's a great song, Leaving Byron.
Turak, singer-songwriter from Wollongong. Find him on Spotify, Turak, T-O-O-R-A-K. And now back to my interview with Tom Brunzel, where he talks about his favourite brain break idea. I'd, I'd like to give you just my favourite brain break idea. Um, I, I certainly know that anyone can look up on the interwebs on great ideas, but you know what? I want students to have the assignment to look up what a great brain break is for them and to have students create their own so teachers can have students lead them. Yes, that's a good one, researching their own brain break. Yeah. Tom, I came from a, a, a family trauma background, but in 1971 I had teachers who knew my ongoing trauma uh, at home and who definitely changed their words and, and their manner uh, when I was in their classroom. Now, yes. it struck me that in some way teachers, or the good teachers, have really always done this but never named it. Do you think there was always something in what a good teacher could do? 
Oh, yes. And I do think it's important to acknowledge that so much of what we now call trauma-informed practice has always been part of great, holistic, age-respectful, stage development approaches to helping students. The words trauma-informed practice are new. I mean, you know, new as in the last 15 years or so in terms of the way we understand it now in education. And I like new wordsmithing. I think it's important to continue re-looking at the terms that we label things to really help meet the needs of our current time and age as it is. What I would suggest is that some of the really fantastic people who have always worked this way, when they do uh, training and consultation with our teams, and I know many other people working this way across the world, the best compliment, the best feedback we get often is, oh, you've just given me language to describe what I'm doing, Mm. and you've helped validate some intuitive ways of working, and I smile real wide and say, great. If you were going to identify a student in a classroom, Tom, that possibly has a traumatic home life or has had something in their background, what are some, some symptoms or some actions that you might look out for? We as teachers, and that's me, I have been teacher trained, education trained, and I'm an education researcher, is that we know need to be therapeutically informed. And what that means is we are not going to delve deeply into a student's family history because that's not our discipline as educators. However, I want my educators to scan the rooms and look for two particular qualities that can help us understand that particular students may really benefit and need this kind of special intervention and special uh, strategy making with them. The first is looking at regulation. Uh, emotional regulation and physical regulation in the body. The second is the ability to form strong collaborative relationships for learning. I mean, in everything in our classrooms now is about collaborative learning, cooperative learning, and working together in groups, because that's what we got to do later in life as adults. We also know that trauma and chronic stress can impact a student's ability to regulate and of course, connect with others in the classroom. So my guess is whether you see these things or not, it's not your job to diagnose, but to even to to realize, ah, this student's presenting struggles with regulation and relationship, maybe looking into trauma-informed practices can be a really viable pathway of intervention. And that student doesn't have to be the student who misbehaves. It can be the quieter one. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we talk a lot about acting out. That's about zero to 100 in two seconds. It's obvious. And sometimes it's easier to know those things because it's right in front of you. But we certainly know that there are many students whose response to stress is acting in. But I think it's a little bit, as you said before, Tom, that it's good for the teacher to actually take a breath, uh, to breathe in, and to lower their brain electricity, it's, that's the way I would present it, and um, actually speak in a soft voice. Um, and I've found that teachers are so stressed these days. They're so overworked, and we know that. You know, it, it's just horrible that they have trouble doing this. They have trouble regulating themselves, let alone the students. 
Well, Phil, uh, you've passed me a baton and I'm going to grab it from you now because this is a particular research area of my own exploration out there. I really investigate teacher well-being and the impacts of trauma's effects on teachers themselves and their own compassion fatigue and potential burnout and vicarious uh, awareness, but also the opposite of that, which is vicarious post-traumatic growth, which is when we observe the growth of a struggling person. And Mm. often in our studies, we see two different groups of teachers. And if you'll allow me, I'd like to explain these two groups that might be helpful to your listeners. Uh, Group one is the group that when they've learned trauma-informed education strategies, they've decided, hey, I'm modeling adulthood. I am mirroring what it's like to be a well-regulated, well-emotionally stable person when learning, because learning can be stressful. And this is how I'm managing speed bump in the classroom. I've got to model these strategies. Good news, when you model the strategies yourself, it's a twofer. You feel better in your own well-being, and we've seen teachers absolutely promote academic learning in robust ways. Mm -hmm. However, there is a second group. Now, the second group in our studies often says to us, oh, I really care about my students. And trauma-informed practice, I can see the importance of that. But you know what? I don't come to work for personal refinement, you know, like I come to work for the kids. Now, when somebody says that it is a flag for us, because what we've seen is we do see some promising student outcomes when teachers apply this to their practice pedagogy and their everyday classroom management. But in these in our studies, these teachers in that second group often report lower well-being at the end of the year, and they will blame their school leadership teams and other structural demands on their time. And we think, yikes, you didn't use this opportunity not only to practice for your own well-being, to mirror for the kids, but now you are essentially blaming a group of other people in your school for things that you don't have autonomy over. Mm. So we can see the real dance and an integrated dance that can happen in practice when teachers say, I'm going to live this stuff, and therefore my students will be able to see me as the living embodiment of what I want everyone to be, educated, regulated, and connected. And it will probably keep them in the profession longer because they won't be as stressed. Heck yeah. And also, I think it is about redefining what the profession even is. Mm. And a lot of people might say to us, oh, I got into teaching because I care a lot about the curriculum and I want to teach the kids that want to learn and I want to teach the kids that are going to show up and be ready to go. Well, that's very nice, but that's not a lot of the teachers we work with because we now understand in a service rationing world when we do not have enough time energy funding staffing etc that we have to see our practice now as educators is integrated i can teach resilience well-being and content all at the same time i can teach how to manage disruption and speed bumps at the same time that i can manage when my brain feels escalated i don't know how to answer a question or define a word all of these strategies become integrated in our work, which yes. I think is also answering the long way your very first question. Yes, uh, indeed. Talk. <laughs> now, now, we're getting towards the end, Tom. Um, look, teachers are so overworked these days. And, you know, yeah. and I, I've heard the voice of thousands of teachers over the last nine months um, that I can't forgive some for treating this as just another mandatory task that, that adds to the paperwork. Sure. My answer to them has been, well, it's it's not necessarily adding to any paperwork at all, but is it? 
Oh, I okay. So when I hear the kind of concerns that you just vocalized, I don't argue with people because if you have a struggling teacher in front of you saying, I am exhausted, I very much validate that because it's true. We are all exhausted. It is a complex world. I want to lift this conversation to school leadership teams and those people in a school who are coaching, guiding, and supporting their staff. It is very important to us to integrate the change journey within schools to say trauma-informed practice, social-emotional learning, restorative practices, the list goes on. It is not a side side pathway. It is not something that we do as something that we add in. I mean, a lot of schools try, but people are exhausted. It's integrated. So the next vista for us at Berry Street is to continue working in the way that I've been talking about, but to really integrate that into instruction, that we can teach content, we can activate our strategies. It's all one journey. And it does take really visionary leadership to make this pathway of practice refinement possible for all of the teachers and their staff. Should it be a part of teacher training? Oh, heck yeah. Because of the robust evidence base out there, we have a number of really valued university partnerships who are thinking carefully, how do we help and encourage students to feel, their education students, to feel fortified to move into communities that need this work the most in all communities mm. uh, to say, yes, when we talk about classroom, the positive ma- management of positive behavior, when we talk about how we design lessons, when we talk about rhythms and routines, trauma-informed practice is now an integral part. But again, teacher pre-service teaching curriculum is an Everest and it's jam-packed. And so again, just like I said, it takes visionary school leadership. It takes pretty visionary university teacher planning uh, courses, coursework to begin carving out the spaces for that and the onward support and coaching of teachers when they're doing their placements within schools. Uh, Mark Smith, the principal of Lamandra SSP, and he's a regular guest on this podcast, said to me the other day that if teachers dumped all of the other state mandatory training and just did the Berry Street Education Model course, it would provide inspiration and a reason to teach for the next five years. Something every teacher needs. That is an amazing comment to have about your program. Well, first of all, Phil, I have to say a very special thank you to Mark, who's been a real good friend and champion of young people in New South Wales for many years. And when we met Mark in our own training courses, he just became an instant friend to us because we certainly share the same values toward what education needs to be. So thank you, Mark. I know you're listening out there. Uh, we're easy to find. Uh, we The name of our program is the Barry Street Education Model, and that's the acronym of our website. It's www.bsem.org.au. Tom, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I'd love to talk to you again in other podcasts. Um, and, And thank you so much for giving time to us. Thanks, Phil. I'd love to reconnect with you soon. And that was Tom Brunzel, Director of Education at the Berry Street Education Model. Um, I like his tips for getting the students to seek out and learn, find, discover their own brain breaks. One of my favourites is to 
ask children to look at a silent movie for five minutes. So not an old Charlie Chaplin thing, but uh, something that's got no sound and draws their attention to just one thing. You know, when you take out one sense, it amplifies the others. So this is one way of getting the brain electricity down. You've been listening to the second part of our series on trauma-informed teaching. I'd like to thank Beck Thompson and Tom Brunzel from Berry Street um, for the role that they've taken in these last two episodes. We won't be having an episode next week. I have some some brain work to do, some uh, some neuroscience education work to do, and Lee's doing her work. Uh, but we'll be back the following week, and the topic will be gender dysphoria. Is it as big as they say it is in Australian schools, or is it really just a bit of a beat-up? We'll also be having our special podcast for members only, where we'll be talking to Ian Luscombe, and we'll be discussing the Michaela school education platform my name's phil dye you've been listening to marking the role i'll see you soon